let me kind of frame what we are talking about uh, today. We have a new president. Uh, on Friday, Donald J. Trump uh, became the 45th president of the United States. And he is, to say the least, um, a very controversial leader. Yes? Uh, in fact, Donald Trump's approval ratings uh, as he's coming into office are the lowest for an incoming president in modern history in at least 40 years since a lot of uh, people started tracking these things. Um, and I am not taking sides. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just stating reality. That's the reality. And this is where we are. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this election is that millions of people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Now, on the surface, that might seem like a, like a contradiction. Uh, these uh, two men, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, they represent very, very different uh, visions for our country and the values that inform their decisions uh, and the narratives that shape their worldviews are um, nothing alike. Their, their personalities are almost polar opposites, um, but at their core, both men had a very similar message, and that is that the system is broken and people want change. Donald Trump was elected president because he seemed to get the struggles that a lot of Americans are facing. Um, frustration with Congress is at an all-time high. Uh, the values and lifestyles that we see depicted in popular culture are vastly different uh, than what perhaps what we held in more conservative times. Uh, and the foundations upon which America was built, things like family and faith and hard work, uh, are increasingly, I think, deemed kind of unfashionable and maybe a little outdated, small-minded. But more importantly, a significant number of Americans have felt increasingly left behind um, in a globalized economy. Uh, one writer explains Donald Trump's appeal in rural America like this. I think this is very um, insightful. He says, if you don't live in one of America's small towns that depends on maybe one big local business like a factory or a coal mine, you can't understand the hopelessness. When it dies, the town dies. And you open the classifieds and all the job listings will be for fast food or convenience stores. The downtown is just the corpses of mom and pop stores left shattered in Walmart's blast crater. And the suburbs are trailer parks. There are parts of these towns that look post-apocalyptic. I'm telling you, the hopelessness eats you alive. And I think Donald Trump listened to these people's concerns, and he, he vowed to be their champion, and they believed him. And on election day, his supporters showed up at the polls in force, and they made him their president. I'm not taking sides. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just stating reality, right? This is where we are. And on Friday, or so yesterday, 2.9 million people joined in a march for women's rights that started uh, as a grassroots protest in Washington, D.C., but quickly spread throughout the country. Uh, and it was by far, by far, 
the largest single-day protest in U.S. history, uh, 500,000 at least in L.A. alone, uh, millions more gathered in cities uh, around the world, in London, and Paris, and Berlin, and Madrid, and Nairobi. And I love the last one. It's even, in, even in Antarctica, like, people were protesting. Um, why? Why did they march? Because women are still being treated as second-class citizens in pretty much around the world, even in more progressive countries like the United States. And despite our president's uh, assurances that, in his own words, nobody has more respect for women than he does, um, there is a very real fear that women's rights, as well as the rights of religious and ethnic minorities and the gay community and the poor, are going to suffer under this administration. And I'm not taking sides. I'm not passing judgment. I am just stating reality. This is where we are. This is the spirit in which people were protesting. The world is watching. Some of you maybe have never lived outside this country. I have. I grew up in Canada. I spent six years overseas in Taiwan uh, working and living there. I've, I've traveled all over uh, East Asia. I've, I've been to, uh, to Europe. And the world is watching. And the world is very, very nervous. So how is Donald Trump's ascendancy to the most powerful position on earth seen in other countries? Oh, I mean, look at some of these headlines. Look at the, the, in China. You see this picture of Donald Trump superimposed with these warships. China is very fearful that a Trump presidency raises the possibility of war. Scotland is fearful. That's a Scottish uh, magazine there. They're, they're fearful that America is turning its back on the world. Germany is fearful that America is going to break up old alliances and a new, more dangerous world order will arise. I hear Canada is building a wall. Concerned but not wanting to offend, Canada quietly plants privacy hedge along the entire U.S. border. It's satire, by the way. That's not actually happening. Because these days, right, people believe things that are passed around like oh, they're outraged it's satire guys right it's a joke listen I'm not taking sides okay I, I am not passing judgment here I'm just stating reality this is where we are our nation is divided the world is on edge and to a lot of people the future looks bleak and let me just say that I think we are where we are in large part because we have become disconnected from one another. We live in, in our own self-created echo chambers, in our own bubbles, and we surround ourselves with people who think like us, and we consume media that just kind of affirms what we already believe, and we live in gated communities, and we rarely venture outside our own circles. We don't listen we don't see, we have become tone deaf and closed minded and it's always us versus them and right versus left and rich versus poor and the enlightened versus what we, who we think of as the ignorant and the righteous and the unrighteous. I think this is in large part why we are where we are. So, so what do we do? What do we do in a world that, that is like this? Let me start by affirming 
something I think we all need to understand. So I want to affirm this, and that is that the church is called to be part of the solution. We are called to be part of the solution, not to sit by the sidelines and fret and say, oh, gee, I guess the world is, I don't know what, just, we're not called to do that. We are called to be part of the solution. We are called to do something. Now, obviously, obviously, everyone will say, well, we need to pray. Absolutely. 100% agree. 1 Timothy 2 uh, says this. I urge, Paul writes, I urge that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. That includes our president. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, and this is good, and pleases God our Savior. In John 13, Jesus affirms us, uh, he affirms, he assures us, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So Jesus promises that our prayers have power, that they will be answered. We pray in his name, according to his will. Oswald Chambers says, prayer is not an exercise. It is the life of the saint. Prayer does not equip us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so absolutely, we pray. And don't let anyone tell you that prayer doesn't mean anything. It's not a time to pray. It's absolutely a time to pray. That's our first job, right? Is to pray. But let me also say that we have much more to offer the world than our prayers. So much more to offer the world than our prayers. George Buttrick, well-known preacher, says this, Prayer is not a substitute for work. Thinking or watching or suffering or giving, prayer is a support for all other efforts. So yes, the world is broken and anxious and divided, but the church is called to be part of the solution to get to work. In fact, we have a mandate from Jesus Christ to be part of the solution, to show in the words of the Apostle Paul a more excellent way. Jesus comes and announces his ministry by saying this. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Something new is coming. Jesus comes announcing a new reality, a new order, a new world. And he says, it's the kingdom of God. And he says, by the way, my kingdom is not of this world. Something new is coming. And his disciples were often confused about what this kingdom was going to look like. And at one time, uh, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, their mom went to Jesus and said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on your right and one on your left? In other words, can they have the, most, uh, the highest prestigious positions of power? Make one of them your vice president, right? Another one, your chief of staff. Like, give them prestigious positions in your kingdom. And Jesus says this, listen... <laughs> You know that the rulers of this world, think about this. Jesus is absolutely spot on. He says the rulers of this world, they lord it over their people. And their officials flaunt their authority. Not so with you. Instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your Servant, your diakonos. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, your doulos, your bond slave. 
just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom of God, a new reality, a new order, and a new mandate. Our mandate now is to become servants of all. This is our response to an angry and fearful and divided world. We pray for wisdom, for the love of Christ, to fill us, for the spirit of Christ to compel us. And then we get up and we go out and we start serving. And we serve those on the margins. We advocate for those who don't have a voice. We speak truth to power. We welcome the stranger. We care for the sick. We seek justice for the oppressed. We serve and we serve and we serve and we serve. And this is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. We are called to be servants of God and to call others to become servants of God. And Jesus calls this making disciples. To make disciples is to call people to become servants of God, to enter into his family, to join the family business of making all things new, to help people find their way home to God, to receive life that is truly life, to be rescued from sin and death, and to pursue love and peace and joy and righteousness. That is our calling, to call people to this. Come, join us as we serve God. Why is this so important? The rallying cry of our new president's administration is America first. While that may be appealing, while that may speak to some of our fears and concerns, this rallying cry, America first, is not a Christian principle. Now, I'm not judging Donald Trump as a person, okay? I'm not looking to pick a fight over politics. I am offering a biblical critique of a particular worldview that is quickly gaining traction in our culture and that is going to guide our current president and his administration. I am offering a biblical critique of that idea. And that is our right. And in fact, that is our responsibility as Christians. We have to weigh the ideas that are offered by our culture and our leaders, and we have to evaluate them in light of the gospel. Then we have to discern how to respond, how to live. America first is not a Christian ideal. Matthew 6.33, Jesus' own words from our Lord, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and, and all the things you need for life and all its fullness. Food, shelter, the things that you need. All that stuff will be given to you. You don't grab those things by putting America first. You receive those things as a gift when we put the kingdom first. There are people who sit on the sidelines and there are people saying, get me in the game. We believe that God is active and moving in the world. God is shaking things up, leading humanity forward. Our God is a God of action. And therefore, we are a people of action. Rich Birch says this, 
This is wonderful. He says, people want change. Didn't we just talk about that, right? People want change. And they believe the system is broken. And they want something to be different. This is mind-blowing. He's absolutely right. He says, the gospel has always thrived in this sort of climate. Change and upheaval create a culture that is receptive to the amazing message that we have to proclaim. We serve in a culture looking for change, and it is our responsibility to point them towards the ultimate change agent. So these times are the perfect time for the church to rise up and share why we have hope. The gospel thrives in uncertain times like this. So where do we start? How do we start creating meaningful change? How can we be part of the solution? First, we have to understand something about our own identity. How God designed us. Do you know how God designed you? We are made in God's image. And John, one of Jesus' most beloved disciples, tells us that God is love. And love, by nature, requires an object. Someone to be the recipient, the beneficiary of our love. Love can't exist in a vacuum. You need to have someone to love. So, therefore, if God is love, then God must be, logically speaking, God must be relational. God must value community. And the Bible testifies to this reality. The God described in the scriptures is a God that has eternally existed in community within the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. God is love and love is relational. And here's the thing. God created human beings to love him and to be loved by him. And so we intuitively, because we're made in God's image, we intuitively seek out relationship and community. We're wired for that. We're wired for connectedness, not for disconnectedness like what we see in our culture. We're wired to connect. We're driven by our need to love and be loved. And the thing about love, you see, is that love requires proximity. Proximity. Love is experienced up close. And the God of the Christian faith is a God who continually draws near to his people. The book of Genesis tells us that before the fall, before we sinned in the garden, the first human beings walked with God in the garden. The book of Exodus tells us that when God called Moses, he spoke to him face to face as a man speaks with a friend. We're told that when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he personally led them through the desert, sometimes as a pillar of fire, sometimes as a cloud, but always up close personally going before them, protecting them, providing for them. God sent his son Jesus into the world to reveal his love for us, to walk with us, to talk with us, to eat with us, to teach us, to rescue us. God is always drawing near to us. And then, and then Jesus promises that he's going to put his spirit in us, to, to literally dwell inside us and infuse us and guide us and empower us. And finally, in the book of Revelation, which describes the end of time, where history is headed, we read that one day God is going to dwell among his people and we are going to dwell with him in his kingdom. 
Do you see what love does? Love causes God to draw near to us. God is love, and love requires proximity. Love is experienced up close. And the God of the Christian faith is a God who continually, relentlessly draws near to his people. And he comes into the messiness of our lives, and he meets us where we're at, and he begins to change us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart, a new life. This God draws near to us. And here is the mind-blowing thing. You are made in the image of this God. You are made in the image of this God. And so how do we start creating meaningful change? By embracing who we are. We are made in this God's image. We are image bearers of God. We are made for love. We are made for relationship. And so we start by drawing near to people. By drawing near to people, we enter into the messiness of their lives. And we show up, we tell them, we show them the good news. That they are loved by God. That they are not alone. We love them with the same love that we have been shown by God. In other words, we start by doing what Jesus did by showing up. By showing up in people's lives. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The message version of the Bible says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We cannot create change from afar. Why? Because you can't love from afar. You need to love up close, and it is love that creates change. This is... This is the nature of our God, a Savior who draws close and near to us. And we are made in the image of this God. And so we, too, must draw near to people. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H, humanity, than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. You hear people say, oh, I love people, I love everybody. Well, how many friends do you have? Well, you know. We cannot love everybody in general. We have to love people in particular. And so we are starting a six-week campaign today called Love Where You Live. And there is no better time for us to be doing this as a church. In the climate that we live in now, there is no better time for this. And for the next 40 days, we're going to do three things. We are going to get to know the communities that we live in, and we're going to make some new friends along the way. We're going to listen to the needs around us. We're going to come up with creative ways to meet them. We're going to invite people to visit our church and explore what it means to become a follower of Jesus. In other words, we are not going to love humanity in general. We are going to love people in particular. Does that make sense? And to do that, we are asking everyone to join a community group. A community group is a group of 6 to 12. Some of them are larger than that. 6 to 12 people who live in the same ge- geographical area and who want to make an impact 
in their neighborhoods. And the way they do that is by inviting people into their homes, by eating together, by engaging their community. They attend city council meetings or volunteer with local service organizations, supporting locally owned businesses, showing appreciation for police officers and firefighters and teachers. So for six weeks, we are going to get into groups and we are going to get out of the house. And we're going to build bridges with people. We're going to begin to restore a sense of connectedness in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. We are going to be part of the solution. Part of the solution. We are a people of action. Here's what some of our groups are up to. Uh, Our Monterey Park North group, which covers like Arcadia, Temple City, that area, uh, led by Joanne, on February 4th, they're going to go and have a potluck with some neighbors at Linda's house. Uh, February 7th, they're going to attend the Arcadia City Council meeting. The next week, they're going to attend the Alhambra City Council meeting and start getting to know people. A Monterey Park South group, led by Janelle and Monique, are stopping by Montebello Police Department later today, right? And uh, you're going to bring some care packages to the officers on patrol with some pastries and maybe a coffee gift card and power bars and some other little goodies in there. I think that's amazing. Our Monterey Park Central group right here in, uh, in, in Monterey Park, uh, led by Ray Warner, uh, they're going to be attending a fundraiser dinner tomorrow night for Family Promise. Uh, which is a ministry that we partner with to help homeless families uh, get into affordable housing. We're people of action. If you're new to, new to our church today, we are a people of action. We're look, looking for new ways. In fact, Kate here um, asked, has been asking me about how we can partner with the, uh, an immigrant resource center that uh, was started by one of our sister Nazarene churches in Monrovia, and she's uh, made an appointment to go and and talk to the director and say, is there anything that we can do to help? Because in in a climate right now where immigrants are not quite sure what their future holds, uh, what policies are going to change, how they're going to be impacted, uh, we want to say to them, we we love you, and and we want to support you. How can we do that? We're people of that. We see needs, and and we meet them. And I love that about our church. If you just joined us today and you want to jump in on one of those community groups, it is not too late. Talk to our campus pastor, Johnny. We'll get you plugged into the closest group. Now, I want to uh, share just a little bit about an important thing as we go into our communities. Here's what I want you to think about this week and during the campaign. As you go into your communities, as you meet people, I want to give you a tip. Learn people's names and use their names. Names are important. Names are part of our identity. Our names are like music to our ears, right? Our name, unless, well, it depends on how people are saying it, I guess, right? But names are music to our ears. The sound of someone saying your name is a sweet sound. It means I see you, right? When God sent Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites, he revealed his true name, Yahweh which means I am, or I will be what I will be, and I will do what I will do. I am the eternal one. I am. And by revealing his name, God was, was taking his relationship with Moses and humanity to a whole new level. Jesus called his disciples by name. Sometimes he would give them a new name. He said to Simon, he said, you're going to be called Peter, which means the rock. Not to be confused with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, the wrestler who turned movie star. You will be called The Rock. Right? Psalm 147, 4. We read that God created all the stars and he calls them by name. 
And whenever God wanted to get somebody's attention in the Bible, he would call them by name. Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob. Right? He called them by name. Moses, Samuel, Mary, Martha, Saul. And God knows your name. God knows your name. So how about we get to know other people's names? I want you to, just for a second, turn to the person next to you. I want to look them in the eye, and I want you to say their name tenderly. Five times. If you don't know their name, ask them. Isn't your name a wonderful thing? You see, calling somebody by name, calling somebody by their name, creates a bond. It creates a bond. It builds bridges. It brings down walls. I mean, imagine with me for a second, right? What if, instead of classifying people according to some kind of label, we refer to them by name? So instead of talking about Muslims, we talked about my friends, Ismail and Ahmed and Khalil. Not Muslims. This is Ahmed. (laughs) What if instead of talking about gays, right, we talked about my neighbor Kevin or my coworker Melanie? They're people. What if instead of talking about atheists, those atheists, right, We talked about my cousin Judy or my dad, Mike. Hope has a name. The name is Jesus. And you and I are embodiments of that hope. We are the symbol of hope, the proof. And you know what? We have names too. And so do your neighbors. So here's what I want us to do during this campaign as you go out. Very simple habit to adopt as Christians. We care about people's names. So, when you are at the store or the restaurant, look at your cashiers. They have name tags. That's there for a reason. (laughs) So look at it and read it and say, thank you, Betty. Or, how you doing, Steve? Good to see you again. The first time you do it, they're going to be like, you know, But then every time you see them after that and you call them by their name, it'll start to create a bond and a bridge. Introduce yourself. Let them know your name. The next time you're there, it is a gateway to friendship. When you're in the store, okay, you're in the grocery store, don't pick the shortest line. You're like, what? Okay, now you're going too far, right? Don't pick the shortest line. Pick the line of the person that you're familiar with and you want to build a relationship with. And every time, go to their cash register. Say, hey, it's good to see you again. Go to the same restaurants and try and sit, try and see if the the same waitress or the same server is there. In fact, if you maybe go with your friend and sit at the counter because at the counter, there's a lot of people who are there by themselves and just start up conversation. 
right? Sit at the counter instead of a booth. Get to know your neighbors. Throw a barbecue. At work, start using people's names instead of like, hey, can you make copies of this? You know, you, hello, good morning, how are you? Right, Bob, good to see you, right? Greet people with a smile in the morning. Use their names. Use them often. And, and one little note. I, I've really kind of learned this, and actually, John, you've been really helpful for me in that. Don't be afraid to spend money on people. Don't be afraid to spend money on relationships because this is what matters. I've got to tell you, some of us are cheap, okay? And it gets in the way of us living out the gospel, Because our goal in life is not to amass the biggest nest egg that we can. Our goal is to reach out to people and mend broken lives and bring people into the kingdom of God. And sometimes spoiling people goes a long way. Spend money lavishly on making friendships. That's the best use of your money, is to build relationships for the sake of the gospel. So what is ultimately going to change the world is not marches and protests, although they can be a catalyst for change and they can be a call to action. They are, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things, but I'm saying that ultimately is not what's going to change the world. What changes the world is the countless small acts of love and kindness and mercy and justice, the hard work that people put in that that goes unnoticed. It's away from the cameras. Nobody's posting it to Facebook or Instagram, away from the limelight. These quiet, simple acts of love, people quietly working towards justice. And we are people who recognize the importance of starting where you are and loving where you live and patiently watering the grass that you are standing on. We don't need to do that this week because, boy, look at those rains, right? But let's water the grass we're standing on. Let's love where we live. Let's be the ones who welcome the immigrant into our homes, who visit the sick and the dying, who throw parties for kids whose parents are in prison, who provide a place to stay and a hot meal for a family that's experiencing homelessness. I'll tell you a short story and then we'll close. Um, Thomas and Merlin uh, are uh, new to our church. They're from India, um, and their son, Baruch, wonderful uh, family. And uh, Thomas works in IT, and uh, they, they've been here a few months. And they started searching for different churches in our neighborhood. They live in Montebello. They went to a bunch. But the minute they stepped in Trinity, they said, this is home. And they just felt so loved here, so warm. Now, I was talking to Thomas the other day at our community group uh, meeting, And he shared with me, he said, it's been really tough for us being in America. Um, Because in India, uh, we have community. You know everybody in a five-block radius. He says, I know you're trying to get to know your neighbors, like maybe a few people on your street. In India, we know everyone in a five-block radius. Because we're all so close together, and our culture is different. And if I had to go to the store, I could drop my kids off at any one of those people in a five-block radius, and they would take care of me. He says, in India, we don't need GPSs. Because if you need to go somewhere, you just ask a random person, and, and they will say, let me take you there. And they'll drop it in, and they'll go with you. That's the kind of community that we have. And he said, in America, um, nobody talks to us, and we're all kind of segregated from each other. And he said, this community group meeting that we're having, 
is so life-giving to us. Like, we, we need this. We really need this. Because uh, we've been lonely. And thank you for doing that. And, and they brought some of their food that they had made, you know, Indian food. It was amazing, this dessert. I took a bunch of it home. And, um, but this is the kind of people that, that we want to be, right? Connected. The problems that we have in this world stem in large part because of our disconnectedness. So let's be part of the solution. What happens when we don't know the people in our neighborhoods? When, if your neighbor's being a little bit noisy, you call the cops instead of just going over and starting a conversation, right? What's happened to us? What happens when we lose our sense of community, the sense that we are all connected, we are all in this together? We should all be rooting for our president to be successful. Because if he is, we all benefit, right? So let's stop with this us and them kind of thing. We should all be praying that our president is the best president we've ever had. Right? Sometimes that means holding our, our leaders accountable. Okay? It doesn't mean blindly supporting everything that they do. But man, we want to, we're in this together, aren't we? So this is how we respond to hate. You've been wondering, what do I do in the face of like everything that's been going on? What do I do? This is how we respond, by getting out there and building community. This is how we respond to division. This is how we respond to hate. This is how we make America great. And Jesus said we would do great things. So let's not love people in general. We're going to love people in particular. Instead of showing appreciation for our police officers, we're going to show appreciation for individuals like Lieutenant uh, Gus Jimenez, who uh, is Monterey Park PD and oversees the chaplain program, good friend of mine. We're going to love people like him. He has a family, right? Instead of praying for our city council from afar, right? You're going to get to know Teresa and Mitchell and Peter, and you're going to be praying for them, and you're going to be have, you're going to have a friendship with them, a relationship with them. Too often Christians stay in the in our in our little bubbles are, that we're so disconnected from the world around us, and we don't understand people's concerns. We become tone deaf, and we look like this. This is a photo of Spain, taken from space. All these little lights just kind of clustered in one place. But Jesus says that you are light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people. You don't put light, he says, in a lamp and then put it under a bowl. You put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is a picture of what the church should be. We take the light into our communities. We build bridges. We love people. If we are going to be part of the solution, we are going to have to engage people outside of these walls. And by God's grace, that is exactly what we are doing. That is what this campaign is all about. And there is a tidal wave of action that is swelling in our church. People want to do something. There is this deep, powerful urge to be a blessing, to respond to the hopelessness in our world. And let me tell you something. We don't want to try to micromanage that or contain it. We don't want to suppress that urge. We want to unleash it. You don't need permission to go and love people. Right? You may need some direction. right? Like when Kate came to me and said, how do I get in touch 
with these people at the Immigrant Resource Center. You might need some connections to be made or an introduction, but you don't need permission. Just go for it. Just do it. So let's start where we are. Let's water the grass we're standing on. Let's love where we live because the change that our world needs starts here with us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are made in your image, and you are a God who is love, and that means you are relational. That means you draw close to people, and we are made in the image of this God. And so, Lord, if we are being true, people always talk about being true to themselves. If we are being true to ourselves, then we will be people who crave love and do the work to build those relationships, to draw close to people. So help us to get out of our bubbles and engage with people. Learn their names, their stories. And perhaps we will earn the right. We will earn the trust that is necessary for us to share about the hope that we have in Christ. Why we do what we do. Why we are who we are. Lord, we don't take that for granted. We're going to go, we're going to earn that right. We are going to love on people without condition. Change starts now. It starts here. It starts with us. We're not going to delegate this to somebody else. We will take up this call. We're going to love where we live. We're going to water the grass we're standing on. And we're going to do it in your name, Jesus. For your glory and for your kingdom. Amen.